You are listening to Innovate at Open, stories from the cutting edge of technology innovation rooted in open source software and collaborative processes. I'm your host, Gordon Half. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to Innovation at Open, our new podcast that talks about open source and how it intersects with the innovation happening in the technology world and elsewhere. I'm very happy today to have with me a co-author of mine, a frequent collaborator in many things open source, and that is William Henry, Senior Distinguished Engineer at Red Hat. Welcome, William. Hi, Gordon. Thanks for the invite. I'm excited to talk about these subjects. Why don't we start with some background on your part? How did you get involved with open source? There was probably two different areas going on at the time. It would have been late 90s and then early 2000s when I was working in the whole distributed computing space and um, Corva and JEE. So I was uh, at one, uh, on one side, obviously experimenting with Linux. I had downloaded Slackware probably in 97 and was playing with it at home on, a, on an old IBM Aptiva. But at the same time at work, I was seeing uh, a lot of uh, open source initiatives uh, in the Corva space, for example, and also in JEE with uh, or J2E at the time with JBoss. And then, of course, there was a lot of other projects like Fuse and Celtics and uh, Camel that were coming out on the on the sort of SOA side uh, for things like messaging and web services. So, so they were going on, and I was getting involved uh, somewhat with those, but not maybe as much hands-on, but more as a user and a, a person who was advising folks um, in the upstream community from companies I worked with. And then, of course, I joined Red Hat in 2008, and that was a completely different level of experience with open source. Complete explosion. It was like drinking from the fire hose. Uh, and, and because I'd been working so far up the stack on the SOA side, you kind of almost assume that you know, a lot of things were already done in operating systems, right? We've had, we had lots of um, cool things like Solaris and IBM uh, AIX and HPUX and, and those sort of things on the Unix side. Surely all that real innovation was kind of done. And perhaps Linux was trying to catch up uh, in some ways to some of the innovations on those platforms. But there wasn't really any real innovation going on, right? And of course, discovered very quickly that there was massive uh, innovation in terms of real time. And then, of course, containers comes along and, and we still see that we're innovating quite a lot on the Linux platform while there's a explosion of technologies on top of that as well. That seems to be one of the really watershed changes that's happened with open source over the last maybe 10, maybe 15 years, but even more so recently, is that open source software, you know, Linux, various message buses and things like that, really what their quote-unquote innovation was initially was much lower cost. That was really a disruptive factor of open source. 
And the big change that we've been seeing over the last 10 years, and I'd argue maybe it's accelerated in the last five, is open source has become where much of the innovation in the tech industry is happening. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of still a combination though, right? In other words, yes, there's an explosion of innovation, particularly if you look gravitating around the Linux platform. But in many ways, some of the innovation ha- has already been invented before or and we just come up with different flavors of it, right? And so less expensive flavors of it are uh, the whole Linux-based platform, you know, be that everything up from, uh, you know, the Linux kernel to things like containers or virtualization or the cloud. It's almost like a reinvention of of technology we were doing in the 60s and 70s, just at a much greater scale. You know, we've kind of reinvented the mainframe. But at the same time, you're right, some of the innovation is around the scale, just the massive scale that we can do now because of the cheapness and because of the availability of of infrastructure as a service, where the access to the, if you like, the time sharing of a platform is much broader, you know, so it's very simple for me to go to the cloud today just for a simple, to build a simple demo. Um, I don't have to go out and acquire anything or do anything. Um, and I can get that resource, you know, in Sydney or in Ireland and on a cloud there, and it doesn't really matter. So I think the sort of scale and the amount of technology that uh, out there provides a huge kind of layered platform for innovation on top of that. Um, and at the same time, we're still kind of doing things we did 20 or 30 years ago, just cooler in color with video and streaming and everything else. You know, in a way, I think the meme that everything has been done before is a little bit tired because, of course, there's many echoes and many instantiations of concepts which may go back decades and decades. But, for instance, to say, oh, public clouds are just like time sharing. Well, they're really not. Right. I mean, we, we've got the type of multi-tenancy that you're seeing on clouds today and the almost, almost certainly to the user, the opaqueness of the geographical distribution of those assets is incredible, right? And the types of tools and innovation and availability of software and services on top of that are a lot different. So we just talked about, I'm not sure if it's attention, but certainly there's these two faces of open source about easy to acquire, low cost, very accessible on the one hand, and this engine for innovation on the other hand. I'd like to take us into some of the other dual aspects that we see around open source today. You just touched on one of them, which is also relevant to your work with container tools like Podman and Builda and so forth. And that is, when do you standardize and when do you innovate? And how does standardization and innovation play against each other? 
Yeah, this is a kind of a tough one because you can see certain innovations out there thriving because of standards, and yet you can see other innovations out there dying despite standards, right? Um, are not so much dying, but but uh, perhaps not delivering where people thought they would deliver. And then the sort of de facto standards, right? So for example, you could look at things like container area for a start, where that was driven by a open source, but very non-standard technology called Docker, that Docker then moved with the rest of the community that were developing it into an open source standard OCI. And that has obviously become very successful. You can see other things like Kafka, which comes out of the Apache Software Foundation and they sort of came out with essentially another messaging type system, which was living in, in Apache alongside things like Cupid. And Cupid became perhaps less interesting, despite the fact that it was based on the AMQP standard, less interesting from a commercial perspective than something like Kafka, which is, as we know, exploded, right? So there's a lot of, uh, just because you build a standard uh, it kind of needs a huge community behind it. And in, in some ways, uh, you know, the community can drive, uh, you know, a large community can drive the standards. So on the other hand, you have projects like Kubernetes, which obviously came out of Google and they open sourced it, but it wasn't like a standard. Uh, but companies like Red Hat and others saw how powerful it was going to be. We jumped in on that project. And now Kubernetes has become uh, the de facto standard. And of course, the whole Cloud Native Computing Foundation, which is part of the Linux Foundation, is has essentially grown up out of that. So it's a complex area where you have communities, you have commercial, you have standards. And, and really, it's about trying to find a perfect storm of bringing those three things together that really drive, I think, uh, the popularity or the success, if you like, of an open source project. Now, it's not universal, and there certainly are areas that are standards first, but I think you are highlighting an important way in which standardization has evolved in many cases. You kind of talked about some of your work in the middleware, in the event space, and if you kind of look at the first iteration of that, SOA 1.0, if you would, that was very much standardized in principle, but it was very heavyweight, very big vendor-driven type of standardization, whereas what we're seeing with the OCI container specs originally, what we're seeing with Kubernetes, what we're seeing with many, many of the projects in the cloud native space is some company, some individual is going out and writing software that scratches some itch. And other people are using that, other people are participating in the community, and people are going, hey, this works let's make it a standard now. So this sort of code first approach to standardization. Yeah, that, it's really fascinating because when you look at it, the whole, you know, when you talk about SOA 1.0 and you talk about things like Corba, for example, now there was a massive consortium, a huge standards effort with Corba with massive commercial backing with banks and telecommunication companies, etc. right? But it really sort of, 
perhaps it slowed down because of that, right? It didn't have a clear sort of vision and, and scalable sort of approach to it. Uh, it was certainly, also you can look at the W3C around standards as well. I mean, that was almost dead on arrival, right? Uh, lots of lessons learned, and I was involved with the um, WS policy work, uh, and you could see, again, massive collaboration, huge organizations, massive money behind it, folks like IBM and um, Microsoft and others, but they never really took off. Uh, and what had happened instead was the sort of free market and innovation in the industry to solve problems kind of fast, for example, with REST-based um, approaches, kind of won. So, you know, standards doesn't always solve the problem. What I, what I tell you what it will do, though, is what a standard will help figure out is whether something will last. So when you look at the lessons learned from things like Corva or things like W3C, it's very easy to get a you know, a cool hello world demonstration up and going in this space. But when it comes to massive scale and transactions and security and all those other things that you kind of uh, pull in from all these standards bodies and, and industry experts and all that, that's where the sort of drag comes and the lag comes, right? And in many ways, the innovation today benefits from those early standards, not because they uh, were successful, but in many ways because they were successful for a time and there was these lessons learned from them. And so when you look at some of the hugely scalable architectures we have today, they're kind of, as you say, you know, uh, built on the backs of the knowledge we gained from those, quite frankly, unsuccessful um, standards from the past. And it's not that there were, they were all closed source either, right? Because you had things like Tau in the Corvus space uh, and other areas there. Um, and obviously we have uh, we still got things like JBoss around today in the JEE space, but other areas just, you know, W3C, essentially the lots of lessons learned there, but not exactly a lot of open source products that you would regard as massively successful in today's enterprise computing deployments. Right. I mean, OSI was another one I was involved with back in the day mm -hmm. somewhat. And the, the network model, you know, people use it. It's a pretty good model, but the products that came out of it were, there was an awful lot of money wasted on that. We still learn the lessons, though. We still talk about L3 or whatever level, you know, layer three on the uh, today when we're talking, or, or whatever layer, right? We're, we're, we still use that as a standard way of talking about how we're going to communicate in a distributed way and whether a piece of innovative open source software you're using today is speaking at one of those layers, etc. But they're not, you know, they're not OSI uh, projects, as you say. So let's talk about some of the other trade-offs or challenges or conflicts that we see in this space. So you've mentioned community a number of times. What are some of the challenges you see with communities around factors like standardization, innovation, stability, and trading off all of those things? Again, it's, it's, a, it's a tough one, right? Because I tell you, one of the areas that a lot of community people don't understand fully 
is the sort of marketability of the technology they're using and how they're bringing it to market, right? So an example of that that I would use would be on the Cupid side, right? So here you had a uh, open source project with a huge backing from many of the banks out there because of AMQP, the standard. So you had an AMQP standard, you had an open source project called Cupid. But when you take that to market, it was a very long sales cycle, right? So there were people who would understand it, the low latency nature, all that coolness, it's open source, super fast, scalable, had fault tolerance and all that good stuff built in. But unless you know how to sell that and sell it at scale, it, it becomes hard to take it to market. And so you have a sales force that's selling lots of different products, and some of them are easier to sell than others, and maybe are, are a bigger price point. And so maybe your um, Cupid-based product is, is less interesting. Something on the other hand, like Kafka comes out, and you know, not so much geared towards a massive commercial product sale, but more as a service, you know, when it comes to things like the cloud or how to build it into a platform. And suddenly it becomes a hugely more popular uh, way of doing things because the, the way it's brought to market was different. Maybe this is sort of a good segue to talk about business models and some of the trade-offs there a bit. I, I come to sometimes have a little bit of an argument with some of my colleagues about whether open source is a business model or not. And it's certainly fair to say that whether or not software is open source, or more broadly how software is licensed, enables and forecloses certain paths in a business model. That said, I still find it's useful to separate the open sourceness and the business model-ish, because while they interact with each other, they're not the same thing. Open source is not a business model by itself. No, it is not. The other thing I would say is just because your open source project isn't able to be directly marketed, doesn't mean that there's not a market for it within something else. So for example, Cupid, it's still got a market there as something that's deployed within other larger platforms, right? So for example, the Proton project there uh, can be used extensively for uh, you know a non-brokered, more uh, distributed messaging pattern, and it's very good. But what you have to understand is that when you're taking things to market in the open source world, you're competing with a lot of other different stories. And particularly, you as a community in terms of how successful this will be commercially, you're very dependent on the people who are taking it to market for you. So a lot of communities will build really wonderful technology. You know, you're you're sending a guy off to the bazaar, right? And he's taking his whatever, his rugs and his baskets or whatever it is to it. How is he presenting those in the bazaar at his stall? How is he showing them? Is your product sitting down on a back shelf because he looks at it and goes, I don't know how to sell it, or yeah, if somebody asks me for it, I'll sell it to them, but really I don't want it up front on my countertop 
what I want up in front of my countertop are the things that sell maybe easily or maybe bring me a lot of markup or whatever it might be. So how you're taking your open source project from the community and how you expect that to be delivered in the market is super important. And sometimes it may be that you're not selling it direct, you're selling it as part of platform or something else that you're doing. So messaging becomes uh, an example of that, where people really don't want to handle the complexity of setting up and managing complex messaging systems, but they may certainly consume a messaging service because it's easy and they don't have to worry about it. We've been seeing things play out in the Hadoop space, for example, about this recently with that seems to be a difficult standalone sale. And in a way, this doesn't even have that much to do directly with open source because I can look at other areas of software, like developer tools, for example, that have historically been very difficult to sell for the most part. Another trade-off that we frequently see is between sort of the speed of innovation, you know, rapid change, come out with a new incompatible build every day, and stability, particularly for enterprise customers who just want something that works and it doesn't necessarily need to be the latest and greatest. And fairly or not, open source communities, projects have sometimes gotten a little bit of a bad rap for being maybe a little too focused on the change early, change often rule of development. What's some of your experiences with those trade-offs? There's a, obviously there's a thirst, particularly, you know, the sort of bleeding edge curve of that innovation where people want newer features faster they want to be able to turn around and consume the ability to say we want to do fault tolerance or, or it needs to be multi-tenant or it needs to be um, more secure. And, and so they're hungry for these new features, but they also are struggling with the uh, how they're going to consume it. Now, I think there's, there's two aspects of that, too. There's the sort of... Um, non sort of cloud native world or whatever where your your traditional apps where you want more stability and you still kind of want more stability but at the same time you want to innovate you want to be able to consume these newer technologies faster one of the things i would say that's changed is that in the past communities would want people to catch up and the people would you know the, the consumer would say, no, we want to slow down. And that's why uh, companies like Red Hat were so successful is because we were able to provide stability for 10 years, for example, on, on Linux with Red Hat Open, uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux, were able to provide that sort of stability for them. And at the same time, you had innovation on the cloud space, which has accelerated that, including the DevOps. And as you say, the uh, break it early and, and and fix it and, and uh, deploy often and all that good stuff or whatever. Anyway, point on that is is what I'm seeing now is a, a very different trend. So I think we've gone through three stages. One is a sort of stability side with a, we want the innovation, but we can't really handle it uh, in our infrastructure to the world of sort of DevOps uh, and CICD where it was more of a, Yes, we want to consume it, and we can consume it, give it to us faster, to now almost a, a situation where it has become, 
yes, we want to consume it faster, but we don't want to own it anymore. We just want to consume it as a service. So I think we're almost at this third phase of, it's like this comedian uh, that I heard who was talking about uh, the joke about, uh, 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 his name is Gary Goldman, I believe. And he's talking about how the, the, the next, this generation will say, I want all of my music on my phone now. And, and they're going, what do you mean all of the music on your phone? And he says, uh, sorry, what I meant was all the music on my phone right now, this moment. And how much are you willing to pay for it? Pay for it? Nothing. That's the, the, the joke, you know. Uh, my final offer is nothing. It's people want everything now to be consumable as a service for free. So it's kind of a struggle on the... Um, it's great in some ways for the upstream communities, but it also means that they have to be innovating faster. It's interesting for customers like Red Hat as they have to try to uh, pivot to perhaps more of a, a services-based model um, and software as a service, uh, providing messaging as a service, for example, or container builds as a service or whatever that might be. But it's also a, it obviously fits nicely into some of the cloud vendors but also puts the challenge on the, the consumers as to how do we want to standardize on this? If we want to innovate fast and consume these things as a service, what are the trade-offs? Do we expect a, a standardized consumption model across all of this? Or do we expect that we're going to have to have different sort of pipelines into these different uh, deployment platforms? And that's why the critical trade-offs that you have here as we went into actually near the end of our book that I'll put uh, a free download link in the show notes is that you have this ease of consumption in public clouds and software as a service, but in order to get that ease of consumption, you are in many ways locking yourself into that single provider. So one of the great both opportunities and challenges for open source broadly is how do you get those attractive experiences to customers in a way that has a sustainable business model while allowing the end users the ability to move their workloads, move their data, move really their intellectual property to wherever they want to run it. Yeah, I think that's going to be a challenge for a while. I think that's where the industry is kind of in a waiting mode a little bit. Obviously, they're not waiting from in terms of business, but they're kind of expecting someone to solve that for them, right? Uh, whether that's their open source vendor, someone like Red Hat, or whether it's the cloud providers themselves. But as they rushed to the cloud and as they're embracing open hybrid cloud and multi-cloud approaches, I think that they're hitting suddenly hitting that whole, well, just how portable is this container stuff, for example, right? Just how easy is it for me to move my instances across these various clouds or to bring them back on-prem? And, you know, we've done a very good job you know, people like you and me of talking about the benefits of open hybrid cloud and multi-cloud, but the industry itself is still trying to 
catch up with that model. And so, you know, things like OpenShift can provide a sort of single consolidated uh, platform across public clouds and private clouds, etc. The question is, is whether that in this sort of consumer approach, how will these developers and operators uh, and, uh, and essentially the CIO offices respond to that if where they're trying to look at just a consumption model and so you know other things like openshift dedicated and things like uh, azure openshift or red hat openshift also you know kind of help with that model but i still think it's a hurry up with my business keep going everybody go fast do things quickly but really uh, are you all making the right decisions here because there seems to be I don't want to own all this stuff anymore. I want somebody else to own it. Is this the right? Are we doing it right? And and I think that a lot of the people I've been talking to are struggling with that decision. Well, there's really been this fundamental shift with cloud, with software as a service to sort of a different way of consuming software. And for that matter, really consuming services to your music example earlier. And that changed environment, I'm not sure. In fact, I I am sure it really hasn't been internalized by everyone. We run software differently than we used to, even when we do it on-premise. And a lot of those implications are still kind of being thrashed out there. William, anything that you'd like to add before we close? There's a couple of topics I would love to dive down to, but I think those are entire podcasts by themselves. So let's hit those another day. I would just say that what's exciting is that open source is running strong. I mean, never before have we seen such validation of open source as we do today. In terms of the innovation, there's enterprise-type projects for almost everything, and they continue to improve. You know, so you're seeing things like um, Federation getting added to, added to things like Kubernetes, um, and we're seeing some really good collaboration around these open-source projects with companies with a view to moving more and more of these community-led projects into a standards approach. And so all that, th- all that has been wonderful. On the other hand, we have this consumption model that there's some hesitation in because despite the appetite for all of this innovation, there is still struggles, as there always have been within the open source world, of how people are going to consume this, right? And how they want to consume it. And who do they want to own the problem? Before it was, can you own this from an upstream management perspective? And now it's kind of, yes, can I have it on-prem, but can you also own it off-prem in the cloud so that I don't have to do anything up there, deploy it? Because I really don't want to be in this massive, complicated IT business. And then on the other hand, you've got small practitioners and consumers out there that are just quite happy to roll up their sleeves, deploy a bunch of servers, and build all the cool stuff on top of it. So there's, there's, it's, it's really an exciting place to be. There's all sorts of different people in the marketplace consuming this. There's some super smart people in the communities upstream. And of course, there's some uh, excellent standards being driven out of these projects um, that everyone's going to benefit from uh, and continue to uh, make money in the market on. Great. Thank you, William. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Innovate at Open. For future episodes, subscribe to Innovate at Open on your favorite podcast app. You could also go bitmason, B-I-T-M-A-S-O-N, dot blogspot.com for show notes, blogs, and a full archive of episodes and more. Thank you for listening. This is Gordon Half, Technology Evangelist at Red Hat.